series called Christmas Greetings. How many of you uh, have ever received or sent out Christmas family newsletter? You know what I'm saying? It's like it highlights what happened the past year. How many do that still? Don't, don't be ashamed. If you're doing it, just be bold. Great, two of you. <laughs> but I guess I won't borrow any of yours. You know, I think we've replaced kind of those traditions with now you can tell people what you just had for a snack on social media, right? I mean, who, who needs to wait until Christmas to hear what's happening in your family? Because we're going to get it if we like it or not on Facebook, right? Um, but I got to thinking, what, what if Mary wrote a Christmas newsletter that first Christmas? What would it sound like? Well, what if she decided, I want to start a tradition of, of writing newsletters on Christmas? What would her newsletter sound like? Well, here's something that I came up with that I think would have been Mary's Christmas newsletter. Merry Christmas, if that's a thing yet. And Happy New Year Zero. (laughs) This has been a year like no other in the Joe and Mary household. So the biggest news of this past year is that I, Mary, got pregnant from God And gave birth to the long-awaited Messiah, Savior of the world, Jesus. Hashtag Savior of the world, Jesus. (laughs) Let me tell you, it's not easy raising the Son of God. Guess what? He still cries. He spits up. He poops. And generally keeps us awake all hours of the night. I guess I was expecting something different from the Son of God. Maybe an angel nanny, preferably with a British accent, or maybe a messy diaper that smells like angel's breath. So I can't imagine what the terrible twos are going to be like, or adolescence in the teen years. Oh, well. As I'm sure you've already heard, I gave birth to Jesus in a stable. A stable with cows, goats, chickens, and rats. And no, this wasn't planned. I did not intend to have an agricultural birthing experience. Joseph clearly did not use Travelocity like I told him before we left Nazareth. But you never guess how God chose to send the birth announcement. A choir of angels lit up the sky outside Bethlehem, nearly scaring some shepherds to death, and they sang about Jesus' birth. I heard it was simply breathtaking, but I'm still a little confused as to why the heavenly choir sang to lowly poor shepherds. Perhaps they put the wrong address in their GPS. We were just uh, visited by three kings who traveled uh, afar, guided by Jesus' own special star placed high in the sky. They were very nice, but brought really unusual gifts for a baby. They must have not seen my baby registry at the Jerusalem Jamboree. <laughs> we met a couple of wonderful old folks in Jerusalem when we, told, uh, when we took Jesus there for his little procedure and dedication, they, uh, what, Joseph? Right now? Yes, I'll have to cut this newsletter a little short. Joseph says we need to leave right now. Something about Egypt, angels, and a very jealous King Herod. He's in a panic, so I better say goodbye for now. This baby is just full of surprises. He has totally changed our lives for sure. Can't wait to see what's next. Shalom and Merry Christmas. That was Mary's newsletter, if she had done a Christmas newsletter. But think about it for a second. The incarnation, the the birth of Jesus through a virgin, is it's the supreme miracle of the Christian faith. If you think about it, it's the cornerstone of our Christianity that Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary. Because without the birth of Jesus, you would not have the life and ministry and death of Jesus. And if he didn't come as the pure-born son of God, then he could never be our savior. And there'd be no reason for him to die and or rise again. So when you think about it, his life is bookend by two miracles, the miracle of the birth of Jesus through a virgin Mary and the miracle of his death and resurrection. It's all wrapped up around the incarnation of Jesus. In fact, the resurrection we celebrate at Easter hinges on this miracle that we celebrate called the incarnation. And that didn't happen just to simply let us know that God exists. It wasn't like, hey, by the way, I'm up here. Here's a gift, my son, let you know I do care. You know, he wasn't just about that. The fact of the incarnation is that it brings him near to us. God came near. 
There aren't too many other religions that do that. Even the Roman gods that they worshipped, who often were talked about coming in human form and coming and being among people, they were there for their own self-interest, never for the interest of others. Yet here comes God near to us. That's the reminder of the Christmas season. And if Jesus is who the angel said he is, and who, by the way, Jesus himself said he was, and God said that he was, then you have to center your whole life on him. In fact, the reality is, if he is Emmanuel, God with us, then we should actually recenter and revolutionize our whole life around him and around that truth. It should bring absolute life change for us like it did for Mary and Joseph. So today I want to talk about one of the Christmas greetings. This whole series has been taking a look at the greetings that were given during Christmas. We started last week with basically a unexpected news. We took a look at the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, and yes, that is part of the Christmas narrative as you think about what God is up to. But today I want to look at life-changing news, life-changing news. Grab your Bibles if you have it with you today, or you can use one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you, or if you have your smart device and know how to use it, <laughs> maybe you need to have your grandchild help you with this, but um, you can use the, the Version Bible app. That's a free Bible app you can download, the most downloaded Bible app, I think, in the world now. Um, and we actually have our notes embedded in there. If you go to the menu and more and events, you'll find Neighborhood Church there, and notes are available there. Or go to our website, albanync.org. And for those brave souls who have gone to your app store, we also have our Neighborhood Church app. I would encourage you to download that. Instructions are on our website about how to do that. But in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to look at one account of the life-changing news, life-changing greeting from an angel. Then we're going to go to Luke chapter 1 and look at another one. So in Matthew chapter 1, we, we see the greeting about the birth of Jesus from Joseph's perspective, all right? So Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, I just want to pause there and, and give some clarification, because a lot of times we read these stories, but we really don't understand what's going on, um, maybe even contextually or culturally what's happening. And so just as a reminder, um, a pledge to be married was just as solid as marriage itself. And the only way to terminate your engagement was through divorce. And so when they pledged to be married, there was usually a, a, a bride price that Joseph would pay. And then he would then go back to his house and prepare a place for him and his wife, soon-to-be wife, to live. And then once his house was ready, he would go back and take his wife, and they would have a, a wedding ceremony that usually lasted a week. All right? So here's Mary, probably a young girl. Most scholars are putting her around 12 to 14 years old. And all the teen parents in the house just thought, what? <laughs> Why would God entrust himself with a teenager? Or even a tween, for that matter, right? And then Joseph. So pledge we married. But before they came together, which means before they were united in marriage and consummated that marriage, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, according to Jewish law, she could be killed for this act of, of sin, especially if Joseph was not the father and they were pledged to be married. That's a big problem worthy of, in the Jewish law, the death penalty. Verse 20, but after he had considered this, so he had considered divorcing her. And I just got to pause here because there was something that really hit me as I was preparing for this message that has nothing to do with today's message, but it just, it grabbed me. Joseph almost considered himself out of the Christmas story because he could only see it from his perspective. See, the truth is there's never been a lady who has been impregnated by God ever. So there's no history to look back and go, oh, yeah, that's that, you know, that's kind of what happened that one time, probably happened again. There's no history here. And so to find out his pledged wife is pregnant, all he can see is she was unfaithful to me. That's all he can see. That's his perspective. So he almost considered himself out of the story. And here's the reminder for me as a follower of Jesus. How many times have I nearly considered myself out of what God was up to? 
because I could only see it from my perspective. When maybe I need to learn to look at it from God's perspective. I wish there were times that I would have an angelic dream that would tell me, hey, Kelly, you almost missed the boat. But Joseph had that fortune of an angel as he was ready to pull the trigger of this whole thing and walk himself out of the story. It goes on to say, verse 20, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. So when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So here's one thing we can look at from Joseph's perspective. If you want Jesus in your life, it's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be inconvenient. I mean, think about it. Joseph probably had his own plans of how this whole thing was going to work out. And uh, a baby to his wife he had not yet consummated the marriage with probably wasn't in his plans. Inconvenience. But Joseph wasn't the only one inconvenienced. Let's go to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth, this ties it to the story we looked at last week, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now, I think the reason why Luke wants to draw attention to that is because Nazareth would be the equivalent of Notai, Oregon. I mean, how many know where Notai is? A few of you. A lot of us are going, I, don't, I didn't even know there was Notai, Oregon. See, Nazareth was not a town of any great reputation. In fact, remember when Jesus came from there? In fact, one of the guys was like, Nazareth, what good comes from Nazareth? That's the kind of idea behind this community, a little town. It wasn't the hot spot. In fact, just up the road a ways was Sephora, a wonderful Roman city that was big and influential. I mean, it could have been there or it could have been further south in Jerusalem, but no, Nazareth, a backwater town that God sends an angel to a girl, which just kind of reminds me, I cannot let my upbringing, my, my family of origin, or my situation of origin deter what God wants to do. So here comes Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel said to her, or went and said to her, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. I want you to notice this, okay? She found favor with God, but her life is about to get really messed up by God. So do not confuse the challenges you face with a lack of God's favor. Never do that. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the the son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And when Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So we look at these stories every year around Christmas. But the birth of Christ changed everything for Mary and Joseph. His life coming into their lives completely changed their lives. And that's why I think this was a news of life change. Life changing news. In fact, when Jesus enters your life and when he enters my life, we call that being born again, right? John chapter 3. 
It will not only completely be life-changing for you, but you know what else it'll do? It will mess up your life of convenience. It'll mess up your life of convenience. I mean, think about it just from a, a, a practical perspective. I remember when we brought our first baby home from the hospital. Jameson, he's in the sound booth right now. We discovered, as much as we love babies, and we've had four of them, how inconvenient babies are. Any parents in the house relate to this? It's like, oh, this is a miracle of God. You take them home, and it's like, this is a demon of hell. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Because right? they inconvenience your life. It changes your sleep patterns. It changes your social life. It changes your spontaneity. I mean, we used to play cards with, it's probably even wrong to say in church, but we used to play cards with friends till late at night. And then we got a kid, got a pack of pack and play around and then a bag full of stuff just to go to the store, right? I mean, talk about an inconvenience on a very practical level. But the same is true as we follow Jesus. He should impact our entire life. It should be very life-changing. And too often, the truth is, we want to experience convenient Christianity. We want Jesus to work for us on our terms. But here's the thing, and this is kind of the big idea for today, that living for Christ is not about convenience. It's about obedience. And that's what we see in the life of Mary and Joseph, two people who stepped into very inconvenient situations in life because of their obedience to the Lord and his plan. It took an amazing amount of courage for Mary and Joseph to enter the inconvenience of the incarnation. But here's what I've discovered. I think that Christ still values incarnation even today. I mean, I know he already came and he, he lived and he died and he rose again to that right hand of the Father. But guess what? We, as followers of Jesus, his church, we're called something. We're called the body of Christ. And as a church, Jesus is still incarnate in our world, in our community, through us. And can I tell you that we should still feel the inconvenience of the incarnation of Jesus as he lives in and through our lives every day. But here's the thing, it takes courage to do that. Much like it did for Mary and Joseph to follow obediently what God had, though it didn't make any sense to them, they obeyed. And can I tell you that today as Christians, it takes us courage as well to truly live an incarnate, life-changing news of Jesus in the way we live. Courage, first of all, to give up your right to live for yourself. It takes courage to give up the right to live for yourself. See, convenience is living with only you in mind. That's convenience. Obedience is living with God in mind. And as you look back over your last week, here's the question I was wrestling with. How much did I live my last week with only me or my plans in mind? And never once considered what God maybe wanted me to do last week. Now, as your pastor, you're kind of hoping maybe I did pay attention to God a little bit. And yes, I do. I start my days with time and his word and prayer, and I give thought to that. But how many of us could recognize that we go on cruise control throughout our weeks, often never giving mind to the things of God outside of our Jesus calling devotional? See, there have been several times in my life growing up, especially as a young leader, where I made God an afterthought. You know, where he got the leftovers of my time and, and of my attention. I might have served in the church, maybe not for always the greatest reasons. But this was evidence that for me, I was simply adding God to my already very busy life. And I think this is the problem with, with some American Christianity, convenient Christianity today, is it's, it's the idea that I can just add God to my already busy life and just keep him in kind of a God compartment where when it's convenient for me, I'll do that. When it works for me, I'll do that. But here's what I discovered thinking about that through the lens of the Christmas story. God's plan and his will would not simply fit into a neat little compartment for Mary and Joseph. 
it totally invaded their life. And it totally inconvenienced their life. Because God's plan required that they accommodate their life around his plan. And too often, I think, we try to accommodate God's plan around our lives. And guess what? That doesn't work. Often he gets the leftovers. As a follower of Jesus, though, we give up our right to live only for ourselves. And that means I need to learn how to accommodate my life around his plan. And as followers of Jesus, guess what? He has a plan for each one of us in this room. You may not be the one who stands up front and preaches. You may not be the one who leads worship, but he very much has a plan for you and part of what you do to advance his mission right where you live, the workplace where you are, the neighborhood that he's planted you in. He wants to work through you, but too often we try to, in our already very busy lives, find a way to accommodate God. It doesn't work very well. Joseph gave up the right to determine his own actions. Mary gave up the right to determine her own actions. I'm sure they both had a very different viewpoint of how their life was going to be, and none of it included this great divine interruption called Jesus. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're reminded by Paul of this in verse 19. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. I know these kind of messages don't fall well on the ears of people in America today. But according to what Paul discovered, and this isn't just some ancient first century Jewish talk. This is Jesus' follower talk. This is timeless principles of the gospel. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Colossians 3.3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In other words, you cannot do the reverse of that, which I think a lot of Christians try to do today. Somehow I'm going to hide Christ in my life and then just bring him out when I'm at church or bring him out when a terrible thing happens or bring him out when my friend needs some words of comfort maybe or whatever, but otherwise I am hiding Christ in my life. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, look, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That means that when life happens to me or when situations occur that don't make sense to me, what people should see is not me. They should see the example of Christ in what I face. With gentleness, love, joy, peace, you know, the fruit of the Spirit we talk about in Galatians. Because if Jesus is your life, you will be inconvenienced. It will ask things of you. Because as Lord, that means that you accommodate your life around him. He doesn't accommodate his life around you. Now, true Christian living isn't, I, I want Jesus Christ, but I want him on my terms. That's convenience. That's not obedience. We drop the terms and say, you know what, Jesus, I come to you. It's not I'll, I'll obey you if, or I will follow you if. It's none of those things. That's not obedience, that's, that's convenience, and that's not what he wants to, to hear of us today because he's not your advisor, okay? He's your Lord. It's not like, Jesus, I'd be happy to hear your advice in Scripture, maybe listen to your recommendations. Uh, I might even do some of them if it actually works for me. That's not what Christian living really is all about. If you want Jesus with you, then you have to give up the right to live for yourself because Christian life and faith is not a negotiation. It's a surrender. It's making him Lord. It's taking hands off of your own life and then wrapping those around Jesus' life and saying, Lord, I'm going to follow you. But here's the hope. I know this sounds like we're asking a lot of us, but here's the good news of that. If I really do that, if I'm committed in that way to Christ, you have to know that he is far more committed to you. Far more committed to you. So it takes courage to give up living for yourself, to embrace the life-changing news of the incarnation. Secondly, it takes courage to take the world's contempt. It takes courage to take the world's contempt. You know, convenience is maintaining the cultural status quo. Just live like the world. That's convenience. But obedience is going against the cultural norm in pursuit of God. And imagine the slander that Joseph faced by embracing Mary and taking her home. The slander he faced as, boy, there's the guy that couldn't control himself. Why else would he marry her? 
she's pregnant, it must be from him. Or imagine the, the, the criticism that Mary had. Imagine going to your mom, Mary, and saying, okay, mom, I got some news. You might want to sit down <laughs> for this one because I'm pregnant from God. I remember once a, uh, when I was a teenager, there was a teen girl in our church that got pregnant and was trying to convince us all that this was God's baby. Imagine the, con the contempt that she faced from her own family. Now, I've heard a lot of, uh, of speculation of why Jesus was born in a stable, you know, in Bethlehem. There's lots of variations you can watch on the History Channel about why he might have been born. But here's the thought that occurred to me. Did her family ever believe her? Did Joseph's family ever believe them? So could it be when they went to the hometown of Joseph, which is Bethlehem, the city of David, that they went there as outcasts among their own family because they're the ones who couldn't obey the law? They're the ones who are bringing shame to our family name because here they are. Could it be? I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying. Imagine the contempt they faced for something that had never happened before and how messed up that made their life. Now, let's think about it as that comes to us today. In many cases, as a true follower of Jesus today, the culture is going to think you're nuts. When, when you take your stand on, on social issues, when you take your stand on, on justice, when you take your stand on sexuality, or when you take your stand upon the, the, the sanctity of life based on Scripture, the world's going to think you're nuts. And so what do we do? Some people decide that the culture's opinion about things supersedes Scripture. And so they bend and they sway to it. Others stand up for what's true and take the slander for it, take the criticism for it. In fact, Jesus said it this way in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. There's a verse to memorize. There's a little Hope 107.9 nugget for today. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. And that's what we want as Americans. We want to fit in. We want the world to like us. But as it is, you do not belong to the world, Jesus says. But I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. And while we may not face physical persecution like they did in the first century church, while we might not face that kind of persecution that folks face in other parts of our world where they're being arrested for their Christian faith, where they're being sent to prison, where many of them are, are being beheaded for their Christian faith, we may not face that right now, but here's what we do face, and you faced it in some measure, I hope, if you're a follower of Jesus, social persecution. It's all over Facebook. Have you ever watched somebody make a religious post? I love all the little trolls that sit out there waiting to comment on your little spiritual posts. There's social persecution we're facing as Christians. And here's what I think happens. That this persecution we're facing now in America socially, especially around political issues, this persecution is doing something. It's, it's separating those who are Christian only by principle from those who are Christian by practice. And let me explain the difference because I think this is important for us to understand because we look at the church today in America and wonder why it's shrinking and I don't think the authentic Christ follower church is shrinking. I think what's happening is we're seeing a split between those only Christian by principle from those that are Christian by practice. So, we are America founded basically on some of the morals that came from coming to have religious freedom. So there's this kind of moral mooring that we kind of have as an American culture, although as you all felt it, it's ripped away from its mooring completely, right? But there's this kind of idea that these are things that good Americans do that sound almost very, in principle, very Christianish, right? But then there's those of us who recognize it's not just a principle that I adhere to, it's a practice that I live and follow. 
And that's the difference I think we're facing today. And friends, you might have been guilty of the convenient Christianity of being Christian only by principle. And then when the culture doesn't align with your principle view of Scripture, then you, you modify under the banner of relevance rather than those who practice Christianity in its truest form biblically and say, you know what, this is what I believe and I'm going to stand upon my convictions. I like the way Charles Stanley put it. He said it this way, too many Christians have a commitment to convenience. They stay faithful as long as it's safe and doesn't involve risk, rejection, or criticism. Instead of standing alone in the face of challenge or temptation, they check to see which way their friends are going. And that is the the challenge today against, I think, especially the American church, what we're continuing to see happen. It's going to take courage to live with culture's contempt, speaking against what we hold to be true biblically. It also takes courage to live with the tensions and unresolved questions. I mean, think about it for a minute. Convenience is taking action only when our tensions are resolved and our questions are answered. Obedience is being willing to act even in the midst of our tensions and our questions. I'll go back to Mary and Joseph. They did not leave those encounters with the angels with everything they ever needed to know about giving birth to the Savior of the world. They had minimal information. Joseph, because he had a dream, didn't really have a chance to kind of interact and ask the angel a question. At least it's not recorded that way, but Mary does, but her questions are like very practical. Uh, I'm a virgin. How is this possible? And her answer, well, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and that which is born in you is going to be of the Holy One, wasn't like, perfect. That's all I needed to know. Thank you. I'll now go have this God baby. No, they still had a lot of questions. Like, okay, why God now in the midst of all this pregnancy from God, are we traveling some nearly 80 miles to go to Bethlehem when I am just about to pop the baby? This is very inconvenient. And then once we get there, we can't find a place to be. How convenient is that? Got a lot of questions, God. I think they were still scratching their head even after he was born. The truth is, as Americans especially, we want all the answers on the front end. And we don't like tension. So if there's any tension, which tension happens between what you believe to be true and what you're experiencing in life. And I think we've all felt that tension before. And the unanswered questions. Some of you in this room today, you still have some unanswered questions concerning your faith. But some of you are waiting for God to front load you with all the information before you get obedient, before you act. But it takes courage to say, you know what? I'm going to act by faith even without having all the answers. Even in the midst of the tension I feel between what life is doing to me right now and what I believe to be true about God. I don't like this space. I don't like the unanswered questions. I don't like the tension. But friends, that is where faith develops. Okay, if you're the kind of person who says, God, before I serve or before I act or before I step out by, quote, faith, I want everything answered to me. You know what that's? That's called faithless, convenient Christianity. But people who are willing to say, okay, God, I don't get it all. I don't know it all. I don't feel like maybe I'm even qualified, but I feel you're nudging, so I'm going to step into it. That's called faith-filled obedience. And here's what happens. If you're waiting for everything up front to be answered for you before you act, faith will never develop in you. Because you're acting upon reason, not faith. But when you sense God leading you in a way that you're going, I don't know, that doesn't make sense. Or when life happens and it's like, God, I thought, and this is life, and what? This doesn't make sense. But yet in that gap, in that space, you insert faith and say, God, I'm going to trust you. Even with my unanswered questions and unresolved faith. You know what happens to your faith? It grows. It develops. In fact, I look throughout Scripture, and I never see God ever give somebody all the information up front. I mean, let's go to one kind of the banner guy we think of in the Old Testament. Let's think about Abraham. Abraham is living in his, he's minding his own business, living in his own town. And God says, okay, here's what's going to happen, Abraham. 
through you and your wife who can't have a child, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to have a seed, and through that seed, all nations will be blessed, and I'm, I'm going to take you to a land that you don't even know where I'm taking you to. Will you follow me? And some of you type A people are like, time out, God. So I live here, and you're saying I need to do all these things, plus we're going to have a kid when we can't have a kid, and you're going to take me someplace I don't know. I'm just going to follow you by obedience. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, most of you don't do that. You want it all lined out. But guess what? Abraham is known as a man of faith. Why? Because he believed. And it was reckoned to God as righteousness. Throughout the scripture, you're going to find not only Abraham, Noah's. Hey, Noah, I want you to build a boat about the size of a football field. On dry ground. Uh, Because I'm going to send a flood, which has never happened before. But trust me, it's going to happen. And what's he do? He builds the ark on dry ground, football size. Animals start coming, right? The whole thing was, why? Faith. And wasn't he glad he did it? Now, he did get some plans about how to build the ark, but he didn't get everything else laid out for him, right? We move forward from Scripture. Gideon and others who God taps on the shoulder and calls to obey without getting all the information. And do you know why their names are found in Hebrews chapter 11, the book of faith? You know why? Because they had faith. They weren't acting on reason. Now, I'm not saying we get stupid for God. I'm just saying there are times when he calls us to act, and we don't have all the information. Mary and Joseph acted. They stepped in. What was Mary's response to the angel when she didn't even understand it all? I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Otherwise, I don't get it all, God, but I'm willing. Bring it on. And that moment on, She's known by, well, by her name, which, by the way, is not part of Merry Christmas, in case you're still figuring that one out. (laughs) There's also the courage to admit you're a sinner. I know this isn't in the story of the Christmas story, but to really be inconvenient followers of Jesus who are inconvenienced by him, we have to understand this principle. Convenience excuses away our behavior as it's just the way I am. Excuses my sin as well. I just I have a bent toward that. But you know what? Obedience admits your spiritual need. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I need a savior, and I need a Holy Spirit that helps me make good choices with my life. What was Jesus' entire mission? It was summed up by the angel who said this: His name is Jesus. Why? He will save people from their sins. This means that Jesus didn't come to just empower us. He didn't just come to love us. He didn't just come to be near us. He didn't come to make us better humans. While those are all part of why he came and the good part of why he came, they aren't the primary reason why he came. He came to save sinners. I like the way that Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 1.15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, you got to embrace this with both arms. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And this is where we all must start, because the truth is you're either a sinner or you're saved. Okay? That's it. There's no other in-between ground. You're either a sinner or you are saved. Romans 5.8, and well, actually back in Romans 5.6, tells us this. You see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That means in your powerlessness, you will never do good enough to earn the favor of God. That wasn't his point. When you were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still focused on ourselves, living in sin, doing whatever we wanted to do, that's when Christ died for us. It wasn't when you crossed the line from kind of grayish black to gray. It was just when you were a sinner. Christ died for you. This isn't about courage than to try harder or to behave better or hope that somehow you can earn God's favor. We are powerless to change without Christ. And maybe you're here and you're dealing with the consequences of your life choices and they keep haunting you and they keep messing you up. I tell you what, I would rather be inconvenienced by life-changing Jesus than inconvenienced by my own stupid decisions in life outside of Jesus. 
And where are you at today? Maybe you're here inconvenienced by life. Life is hard because you've been living for yourself. You're doing what by nature we all do as sinners, and you live a broken and corrupt life. I'm not judging you this morning. I'm saying that's a reality we all have faced. None of us was born holy except for one. His name was Jesus. The rest of us were sinners. I know this is kind of hard for us to fully embrace the idea that when we were powerless, that that's when God loved us and died for us because we as humans embrace what we tend to call conditional acceptance. I know you're supposed to love your spouse and love your kids without conditions, but how many of you know as humans we are bent toward conditional acceptance? I love it when. I love you when and if you, and that's the terminology we live in as humans. But that's not what God did. He wasn't like, I'm going to love you when you clean up. I'm going to love you when you get out of this mess you're in, this spiral. No, it was when you were absolutely broken and dead in your sin. That's where I loved you. And that's when I saved you. You can't stay there. (laughs) I don't want you to stay there. That's why I sent Jesus. And we all have to start with being, admitting that we're a sinner. It's where it all starts. 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. So it takes courage to admit you're a sinner. But I've been there in my own life. When I came to that point as a young boy and recognized I'm a sinner, And I wasn't that bad of a sinner as an eight-year-old. I did eight-year-old sins. But I recognized something within me that became the starting point of a journey with Jesus. And I can't say I've been perfect since then, no. But I'm living under his grace, not his condemnation. Because there is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you're a sinner, God still loves you, but eternally you will be condemned. There's no way around that. You're either, like I said, a sinner or you're saved. And I made that choice as an eight-year-old, and I've continued to make that choice through, I, through my life and making corrections under the grace of God. And if you think it takes courage to be with Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, which it does, we talked about it, you know what? It took him far more courage to come and be with us. And I'm so glad that he did. I'm so glad that he did. I'd like us to bow our heads and, and close our eyes as we think about for a minute this message that relates to us. Is your faith born of convenience or conviction? Some of you might have came to Jesus because it seemed like a good idea. Kind of a get out of hell free card or maybe a change the way you live and become a better person. That's convenience. The conviction is recognizing I'm a mess and I need a Lord and I need a Savior. Some of you might have made Jesus your Savior and you're glad he saved you from your sins, but he's never been Lord of your life because you have made him wrap around your life rather than you wrapping your life around him. And I know this is a a hard message at times to swallow, but I've bumped into this throughout my entire life, wanting to usurp his Lordship and assert my own will. Don't compromise your convictions for your convenience. Don't do that. So here's the question as we think about this and the Christmas story. We saw what it cost Mary and Joseph. What does it cost you in your following Jesus? I know that salvation is a gift. We cannot earn it. But once I embrace him as my Savior and my Lord, there is a cost associated with following him. In fact, Jesus said, if anyone's going to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He says, who, before they go to build a house, doesn't stop to consider the cost? I'm glad that his salvation for me is unearned, that it's a grace extension of his love to me. But you know what? Once I cross that line and make him Savior and Lord, it's going to cost me. My life. What does it cost you to follow Christ? In what ways has your Christian life 
inconvenienced you? Or have you unintentionally settled for convenient Christianity? Because living for Christ, remember, is not about convenience. It's about obedience. And today, maybe you're recognizing you've slipped toward convenience. And you've made it work for you when it works for you. But other than that, you're living for yourself. Friends, he's not Lord of your life. And he's got a plan and purpose beyond your life. If we would just grab hold of that. That's what the city of Albany, Lebanon, Corvallis, that's what they need is people who recognize that. Convenient Christianity looks gross to people. It's hypocritical. But authentic people who love their neighbor as themselves and love God with all they are, that's, that's irresistible. So God, we pray in these moments as we consider our own life in line of this message. You brought life-changing news to Mary and Joseph that day. And it messed up their life. It totally inconvenienced them, but they're so glad you did. And we're so glad you did. But lest we make this just about Mary and Joseph, Lord, the day that we recognize the plight of our own life, that we are sinners, and we came to embrace that and had the courage to see us for who we really are, and we made that decision to say, I know I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And once we made that decision, we made you Lord. And that means we handed our lives over to you. And in doing that, we embraced the inconvenience of the incarnation as well. But most of us, if we look back over our week, our month, and maybe even our year, we recognize that it's not really inconvenienced us at all. Because life has been about us. So Lord, thank you for the reminder in Scripture that when you enter lives, you, you bring inconvenience, but in a way that is absolutely incredible. Because when we stop and step into those places of inconvenience, that's where you're working, and that's where life change happens for people who never saw it coming. The coworker at work, our family member that we took time and attention, that bystander in the city that just had a need and we saw it and stepped into it. Inconvenienced, yes, but used of you to do what only you can do. God, help us to be interruptible, inconvenienced Christians. See your plan accomplished through us. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, Kelly, this is all great. I'll just talk about inconvenience, but I'm broken, Kelly, and my own broken life is messing me up. Well, here's the good news. Jesus also brings life change. He forgives your past. It's gone. John tells us that. We already heard it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us. Maybe you're in that boat where you recognized if you're either a sinner or saved, you know which side of the equation you're fall on today. And I don't want you leaving here without the chance to say, Jesus, I want to make you Savior. So two things. If you're here today and you're saying, Kelly, I've settled for convenient Christianity and, I, and I'm receiving the challenge today to be inconvenienced for his purpose. That's one side. If that's you today, as a Christian, you love Jesus, but you recognize that you've been really creeping toward convenience. Just raise your hand and say, Kelly, that's me. I, I'm stepping up to the challenge today. Thank you. Anybody else? I'm stepping up to the challenge. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, hands. Thank you. Maybe you're here on the other side of the equation. You know you're on the outside looking in. You know that you're a sinner. And you've wondered if God could love you in the midst of your brokenness. Yes, he does. While you were still in the business of sinning, Christ died for you. He loves you. But he is the only way by which you can be saved. And if you're here and that's what you need today, say, Kelly, I need Jesus as my Savior. I've messed up my life really good, but I know that he's my Savior, my forgiver, my redeemer. And I'm putting my trust in him today. That's, if that's you, just raise a hand and say, Kelly, that's me. Pray with me today. Thank you. Anybody else? That's me today, Kelly. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the honest hands in this room today. And there are those who are still wrestling with this in their own heart and couldn't respond today. I understand that. 
But I pray that in these moments, first of all, for those that are making the decision to serve you and dedicate their life to you as Lord and, and find the forgiveness only you can bring, God, I pray that in these moments right now, they recognize that they can do what the Bible says, admit their need of you as a Savior, confess their sins to you, and you are faithful to forgive. So thank you, Jesus, for doing that right now as they confess their need of you. By simply saying, Jesus, I, I need you today. I've messed up my life, and I need a Savior. And I ask for your forgiveness, and I ask that you would help me to follow you with all of my life. I make you my Lord and Savior today. Lord, that's, that's their prayer. And in praying that, thank you, Lord, that's a prayer you always answer with yes. And angels in heaven rejoice over this. And for others in the room today who have been living conveniently, but they've felt the challenge today, I pray that tomorrow when this message continues to ruminate in their heart, that God, they would recognize tomorrow is a new day to see you at work and what is going on around their life and to potentially be inconvenienced for the purposes of which you have called them, to be light and hope in the world around them. And that happens at work. That happens at the mill. It happens at the school. That, that, that happens in our business place. If we just pay attention to it, God, you're already at work all around us. Help us to be inconvenienced by you. So that others can find the hope of Christ this Christmas. Challenge us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 